If you have your Bible, open to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 12. So whether you've got one of those good old-fashioned print versions of the Bible um, or whether you want to pull that up on your phone, um, turn to Romans chapter 12. I've noticed lately as I've gone on the internet, and of course you see all sorts of ads on the internet, that um, I'm seeing a lot of ads promoting fitness programs for old men. And why is that? Um, how does it know? How does it know that I'm out of shape? How does it know that I'm becoming an old man? I don't know, it just knows. I don't know how all that works, those algorithms, but maybe like, I don't know if it's because I hit 40, you're going to be there pretty soon yourself there, bud. Have you hit 40 yet? 42? Well, you're my age. Have you noticed the same thing? Oh, yeah? Okay. Uh, maybe it's, you know, hit, hitting the age of 40, but um, all of a sudden, my, my internet is just full of ads of fitness programs for older men, and I'm not, uh, I'm not a big fitness buff, but the little that I have done in my own life, and I've tried to have the, a bit of this routine, and a little bit I've kind of read and researched, um, I, I've come to understand that the fitness of your core is the most important thing. They say, especially as you age. You see, they say, people tend to focus on the legs and the arms because it's kind of showy, right? Big biceps, nice big, those big legs, you get to show them off at the beach. And that's all fine and dandy to kind of work out the arms, to work out the legs. But they say, the most important part of you that needs to be fit in order to be healthy, especially as you age, is to have a healthy core, you know what the core is? It's this part of you. It's the part of your body that contains all the really important parts, right? And the, so they say, really, it's less important how big your biceps are, and it's more important about how strong your back muscles are. It's more important about how your obliques and how your abs, those things that surround those vital parts of you, it's really about um, the core. And I don't know about you, but I actually find the core the hardest part to work out. If you've ever done workouts, abs suck. Working that out, that hurts. Those parts hurt the most. Man, if I could just do arm workouts, as you can tell, I don't do much of, and legs. But, um, but science tells us that, that the core is the most important part of you to be fit in order to be healthy, because that's where your vital parts are. And you know, the way God designed the body, I mean, He's smart. If your body's in distress because you're really cold and your body needs to protect itself or there's something else, some other threat, the body knows to protect the core. And so it will actually work to conserve heat. It'll actually change the circulation of your body. So instead of sending all that blood all to the tips of your fingers and your toes, that parts that it's nice to have but you don't absolutely need, it actually packs all of that. It conserves that in your core. God designed the body to do that because the core is vital. And that's true, obviously, in a physical sense with our body, but that's also true, I think, if we were to think of ourselves as a spiritual body, both individually as followers of Jesus, but as a church, as a spiritual body, it's the core that matters most. And so, in these next eight weeks together, we're going to be talking about the Christian core, both for the disciple, for you and for me, but also the core for us as a church as we pursue our mission together. Do you know our mission as a church? Can you recite it from memory without looking at the front of your bulletin? Anybody? Bonus points in heaven. Put it up on the screen. New Life Church. 
We exist to make disciples who experience new life in Christ, express new life to one another, and extend new life to those who don't yet know God. That's why we exist. That's our mission. And it's all about relationship. That mission is is about making disciples who are growing in three spheres of life, the three key relationships that we all have. First of all, relationship with God. Then relationship with one another as a spiritual family and in our own families. And then the third sphere of life, the third key relationship, our relationship with the world around us. So we seek seek to be a people in a church that's helping people grow in their private life, in their personal life, and in their public life. It's all about growing in these three key relationships. And as we look at this mission of our church, we, we have distilled from that four core values that kind of embody that as we seek to actually live that out in our lives and as a church. So in these next eight weeks, we're going to be talking about the four core. These four things, wholehearted worship, authentic community, passionate service, and courageous witness. These are the four, I don't know why I'm holding up three fingers. These are the four core values, I think, of the Christian of the church, because these are the four core values we actually see Paul summarize for us in Romans chapter 12, which is maybe the best summary of the anatomy of a disciple of Jesus. And so he begins in Romans chapter 12, and I just want to look at the first two verses this morning. So we're going to take over these eight weeks, uh, those four core values in turn to understand what they are and how we can practice that in our life. So today... And next week, we're going to talk about wholehearted worship. Paul says this, Romans 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, say it with me, (laughs) I thought that was going to be easier than it was. This is your true and proper, and you know why? It's because some of you, you're looking at a Bible with a slightly different wording, and we're actually going to come to that in, in just two minutes, okay? My Bible says, like, I'm, I want you to look at the screen, okay? This is your true and proper, there you go. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul here begins by talking about worship. That word worship, I mean, we use it a lot. What does it actually mean? That word in the Greek there speaks about an attitude of reverence towards someone or something. It it describes a heart condition where you you assign or, or express the highest worth in something or someone. To express the highest worth in something or someone is worship. That that word worship. And we've talked about it at times in the past. A lot of our spiritual words come from Latin or Greek. That one is actually an old English word. It actually is what it sounds like, worth-ship. It is the act of giving worth or expressing worth. So to worship God is to express that in God we find our highest worth. He is our highest treasure. He is that of greatest value in our lives. In Him, we find our greatest identity, our greatest significance, our greatest joy, and our greatest security. We worship God. 
How are we to worship? Paul says here, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is, this is the language of, of the altar, the temple, right? And, and, of course, his audience, they were familiar with this idea of going to the temple, whether you're bringing the offering of a bull and you're putting it on there and offering that to a god, whether you bring the offering of money or a food offering or something. They were very acquainted with the idea of taking something and devoting it to God, putting it on the altar, because the word sacrifice is a very spiritual term, even though other people use it, like a football player might say, I had to make a lot of sacrifices to get where I am. But the word sacrifice really is a very spiritual term. It comes from sacred. It means taking something and making that thing holy. Devoting it to God for the purposes that God has in it. It's to sacrifice. And so what does Paul say that we are to sacrifice, to make holy? We are to offer God our bodies. You redeemed yourself. We are to offer God our bodies. Now, that's kind of an interesting word here because Paul could have used different words. He could have said, offer yourself. Like if he was just wanting to talk about the person, there's other words and maybe better words he could have used. But he used the word that described this fleshly thing, the body, blood, blood and bone. Which is interesting and I think is actually kind of important. He's trying to make an important point here um, because some people had a really uh, a, a, a warped view of what worship was. In fact, almost everybody in his day had a warped view of worship, and many today. Uh, so coming back to how you were confused when I asked you to say the word worship, my version says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Mine says true and proper. Anyone else have a different version? Spiritual? This is your spiritual act of worship. So your version might say, this is your spiritual worship. So he's making a point here. What is your spiritual worship? Offering your bodies. What he's trying to do is, try, is trying to show them, and he's trying to show us everything is spiritual. You, because some people, they have this mindset that there's some things have to do with God and other things don't have to do with God. Some things are sacred, and other things are secular. They don't have anything to do with God. But what he's trying to say here is proper worship, spiritual worship, is actually offering your bodies with all of its earthly, bodily desires. Uh, and that was, that was a, a bit of a foreign concept to them because in Paul's day, they compartmentalized life. There was something called Gnosticism. Don't try to spell it. It, it was just, it, it was a Greek way of thinking about the world that separated the earthly from the heavenly, and they didn't have anything to do with one another. And that was bleeding into the church, and so he's addressing this in the church. There were people that were buying into Gnosticism, the things like, you know, th these are the things that have to do with God, this is what worship looks like, and then th th this part of my life over here doesn't have anything to do with God. Relationships, sex, eating, work, money, whatever it might be. But Paul is saying here is that we cannot compartmentalize life. And so, so what that led to for a lot of those early Christians is it led them to do one of two things when they separated the body from the spirit. It led them to either indulge the body, right? Like the, doing all of this has nothing to do with God, right? Just 
following my, my carnal, earthly desires. It doesn't matter. They would just indulge those. And then they would go to church and they would worship because that's different. And then there were others that they, they separated the parts of their life by, by saying the body was bad. So, another, so in, instead of just kind of engaging all the sexual desires and, and whatever desires one had, thinking that had nothing to do with God, they would just deny those things altogether. And they said, you ought not to be married because marriage involves that. And that is earthly. That's bodily. We need to deny ourselves that, right? And we need to live a very austere life and be hermits in burlap sacks that don't have any fun and don't have salt in our food, bland food, living in a hut up in the mountains. That's a spiritual life. And what Paul is saying here is no. His big point is this. Everything is spiritual all the time. That's his main point in this passage. Everything is spiritual all the time. So when he says we are to offer our bodies, he's saying there's no area of your life that is not about worshiping God. Everything is about God all the time. Your whole life is an act of worship. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, this place, that place. Everything you do is all about the worth that you find in God, and there is no exception. Worship is 24-7 because every thought, every word, every act that you do is pregnant with the possibility of expressing the greatness of God in your life. Everything. Worship is our whole life. Everything is a way of showing that in God we find our ultimate significance, security, and joy. So there's nothing more central to the life of the Christian than, than worship. And that's why we talk about it first. And that's why Paul talks about it first. Because everything that comes after, everything is worship. Everything, service, community, witness, everything is the outworking of worship in your life. Our ways to treasure God and to show that He is your highest treasure. In Him, you find ultimate worth. Everything is spiritual all the time. And so what Paul is saying here is, don't let your worship be partial, because partial worship is not true worship. Sunday worship without Monday worship is not true worship. Worship is the whole life. So then he continues in verse 2, he says, Do not conform to the pattern then of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. What does that mean? What does that look like? The way the world does things, the the worldly mindset of worship. I would say if there's one word to summarize the pattern of the world, it would be the word idolatry. What is idolatry? Worship of idols. Good. It was a simple question. I was looking for a simple answer and you gave it to me. Worship of idols. Now, you don't have idols, do you? 
I mean, back in Paul's day, they had idols, like literally idols, figurines everywhere. You couldn't go anywhere without bumping into a temple, and there's Zeus, or there's Neptune, or there's Artemis. There, there, were, there were idols everywhere, and people would have their own personal idols in their home, a shrine of little figurines that they would worship. Thank God that we don't do idolatry anymore, right? But even back then, what that was, they were not actually worshiping the figurines, or the gods that they believed in. No, those were just ways of serving, the tr- worshiping the true idols that were in their heart. Because even today in parts of the world, maybe you've been, I went to Mongolia when I was 15, there was a rock pile. Everywhere you went, there was a rock pile. And in their religion, when you came apart, you had to add a rock to it. And you went around and you said a prayer to, to keep the evil spirits away from you so they wouldn't bother you. And then you left, a, and you left an offering so that, you, that, so that you would be blessed. And often that was a little bit of money or something else, like a cigarette. And actually, that's where I first smoked my first cigarette. I, 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 I pulled a cigarette that was an offering to a foreign god. <laughs> I smoked it, and it was my first and last cigarette. I'm not promoting smoking here. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't fun. But that was kind of my act of like, you're going to offer that? I'm going to smoke it. Sorry for that aside. Um, okay, where was I going with that? Where was I going? I think the idea was um, whatever version of idol people worship, um, don't be mistaken thinking they're doing something different than you're doing or your neighbor's doing they're not. Because when they offer whatever it is, a little bit of grain, a little bit of money, a cigarette to that little God, what are they doing it for? It's so that they could have children. Would you make me fertile? I want a family. What is it? That's not the idol. It's the idol is the thing you really need to have, have to be happy. So what is it? Maybe you're using the idol to serve the true idol in your heart, which could be anything. It could be prosperity. It could be money. It could be success in your business. It could be to have a family. It could be to have physical health and longevity of life. It could be any of those things, but don't like, like, don't be mistaken, it was never about the little figurines. It was about those things serving the idols in the heart that have not disappeared. And that's why God, the only true God, when He came and He made His own people and He gave them a covenant and, and, and His own set of guidelines, He said something interesting. Unlike every other place in the world and every other religious system, when you worship me, I don't want you to make idols of me. You shall not have any idols And he wasn't talking about like other idols of foreign gods. He was talking about idols of himself. Why? Because he knows the human heart. As soon as you make a little idol of God, then then now, now you feel like you can control and manipulate God so that God serves the true idols in your heart. The things that you really want from God. It's not about actually worshiping God. It's about using God to worship the idols in your heart. So, yeah, we've gotten rid of the little figurines. We're a little bit more sophisticated in our idolatry, but but... We are still prone to be idolaters. And all the people that you know out in the world are given to idolatry. This is the pattern of the world. And those idols in our heart, again, are those places where instead of looking to God to find security, we look to something else. Looking to God to find joy or our significance or meaning, we look to something or someone else. And so idols could be work, Success in your business can be an idol. Finding your worth in your career. An idol can be romantic relationships. Feeling like you, 
you need to find your own worth in how other people desire you. You need to know that you're desirable. And so you pursue that in romantic relationships. That's another common idol. Health and leisure and comfort people pursue as the highest good in their life. Money. People worship money, and Jesus talked about that. Why? Because in money, people find a variety of things. Maybe they find security. And if I'm going to be honest, um, if, I know if there's an idol that vies for my heart, it can be money. And I've never had much of it. So don't think that you only can have, make money an idol if you have lots of it. It's not true. The point is, where is your heart trying to find security? I know my bent. Some people love to, some people have fun spending and some people have fun saving. Why do I have fun saving? Why do I like to look at a number and it makes me happy? Why? Because I'm prone to, to find security in that. And if I just had enough, I'd be safe. I'd be secure. And that becomes the place, right? That, that becomes the idol that I treasure because that's where my security is. And so, I mean, the, the writer of Proverbs said this in Proverbs chapter 18, verses 10 to 11. You can throw that up there, Christian. Uh, talking about this very thing, the idol of money. He says, The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. There are people out there that they, they're, they're trying to find safety by building walls with money. And he says, all they're doing is an it's an imaginary safety. It's, it's no real safety because tomorrow something could befall you and that could all be gone. Where is true safety found, he says? The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and find their security in God. And so for me, I know that I have to be careful about making an idol out of financial security. Some people maybe make an idol of family, find their ultimate joy in family. And who doesn't love family? Family is supposed to be an awesome thing. Family is a great thing. I love my family. Sometimes I love my family so much it hurts. I mean, I was at the Bombers game with Pippa yesterday, my, my youngest. She's the only one that's still at a Bombers game with me. And, and it's kind of become our thing. We go to a Bombers game, and I hope, I hope like... I hope I'm an old man and she's a grown woman and we're going to games because she's the only one left in my house, you know, to share that with. Um, but you know what? It, it was a, if you watched it, it was a great game, right? And they're, and they're going to go to the Western Semifinals and, and the Rough Riders, unfortunately, are eliminated. And um, let's just take a moment of silence for the Rough Riders <laughs> fans, if we would. Ha, 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 Sucks to be you. Um, it was a great game. Boy, it was a lot of fun, a lot of big plays. But you know what made me even happier? It, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't the fun of the actual game. It was turning to my daughter and, and seeing my daughter have fun. Right? That, that's, you know, and, and that, I think that's how fathers are supposed to feel and, and mothers, right? You, you find delight when your kids experience delight. And that's good but it's dangerous because idols are sneaky. Idols can be subtle because we think idols are bad things. Most idols are not bad things. They're really good things. They're great things, but they're not the best thing. 
An idol is a good thing out of its proper priority. It's a good thing that takes God's place in our life. And so, when it comes to family, I, I think Jesus knew that many people would make it an idol out of family. And so, He said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. You can throw that verse up there, Christian. Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person can't be my disciple. Who said that? Jesus said that. Hate your family. Now, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying mistreat your family. No, 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 no. He's, he's challenging idols. He's saying don't let your family even usurp me as the place where you find your significance, your security, and your joy, because it's possible. And, and, and it's such a very subtle idol, right? And so even in that moment, I love when my kid feels good, makes me feel good. So what that can become is, I can live my life over what will please my kids? What will make my kids happy? And if you allow that idol to be erected, it might feel good, but it doesn't go well. We're not supposed to live to please even our family, but to please God ultimately as the one who fully satisfies and gives us significance and joy and security. So idols can be sneaky and subtle, and our hearts are really good at making them. Our hearts are idol-making factories. I wrote that in my notes, and then Daniel told me that actually that's, that's, I didn't make that up. John Calvin said that. And I thought, well, you know, we're kind of the same, John Calvin and me. We're kind of on that same level. I think we'll be friends in heaven. Um, if you don't know who John Calvin is, Google him later. Um, our hearts are idol-making factories. And so as Christians, we hear the word idolatry, you know, or, or we, we, we hear what Paul was saying to, to the Romans, and, and we have to note that he's not talking to the people out in the world, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that have decided to follow Jesus, that would consider themselves disciples. He's saying, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. The word living there, instead of dead, doesn't mean don't kill yourself. Don't, don't, don't worship God by killing yourself. That's not what he means. He means this is an ongoing sacrifice. You wait, to be a Christian means to get up every morning and offer yourself anew. It's worship, it's offering that doesn't end. It's not something that you do once or it's not something that you do on Sunday and then you do it again next Sunday. It's like every morning you get up and you offer your whole self to God in worship to find your highest treasure in Him. So Jesus would quote the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15 when He would say, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me and they worship me in vain. Christians, we must be careful. It's possible to honor and worship God with our lips and not with our hearts. It's possible to worship God seemingly in some areas of our life, but, but then still have idols, things that we absolutely need to have happier, things that we find our significance, our security, and our status in. 
So how would you know what an idol might be in your life? What idol might be vying for your heart, for your affection, your allegiance? Maybe a a couple questions to ask yourself is, what disappoints me most? What do I complain about the most? What is my biggest fear? You're going to wake up one morning and all your savings are going to be gone and you lost your job? Is that your biggest fear? Is your biggest fear that one day your whole family is going to be eliminated in a terrible accident? Is your biggest fear that you might discover one day that there is no God and the gospel isn't real? What is your biggest fear? What can't you be happy without? If, if we were to think on those questions and answer those, I think it would help us identify if there might be idols vying for God's rightful place of, of worship in our heart. Here's the thing. Every idol you worship will ultimately fail you, will never sustain or satisfy you fully. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, you can throw that up there, Christian. He said, Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Those those two verses, I'm I'm glad he gave 25 and not just 24. The disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That doesn't sound good. That sounds like it's all just about dour duty. It's just something you have to do because God's this big, egomaniacal, narcissistic, and He could smote you if you wanted to, so you better do it. You better worship Him. To take up your cross means to fully surrender, fully give over your life to God. So I'm glad he says, verse 25, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's a way of Jesus saying, if you worship idols, they will fail you. You're trying to secure your life, your worth, your status, your significance, find your joy, in all of these ways, you're pursuing that, but in the end, that will fail you. For only in God and in, in and worshiping God with your whole life, only then will you have a life that's deep enough, that's wide enough, that's enduring enough, that can sustain and satisfy your significance, your security, your joy. When you worship God and nothing else, then you will find your life. Everything else will rob you of that. And I have found that in my own life. I have found idols rob me of peace. And, 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 and idols, again, they can be sneaky. You know what an idol for me is? And it's probably common as, it's probably no different for those of you that have a business that work, right? Maybe, you're, maybe your idol is building your business, being seen to be a successful business person or whatever. For me, it's, it's really easy for ministry to become an idol. And, 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 and assess my own significance or my success or my status or my security based off of a variety of things. How's the ministry going? 
Is it good? Is it not so good? Is it better than it used to be? Is it not as good as it used to be? Are there more people here than there used to be? Are there less people? Why are there less people here than there used to be? And, I, and, 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 if, and if you know what that's like to worship idols, and you do, whatever that idol is, it robs you of sleep because you lay awake at night trying to figure out how you can secure yourself, how you can sustain this, what you need to do. And so I have found myself at times um, robbed of peace, feeling anxious because my mind at night is going through everything, what's happening, what needs to be done. And if I'm honest with myself, when I have those moments of clarity, I know what's happening. It's like, Rusty, you are worshiping an idol. You are trying to find somewhere else what only God can give and sustain and satisfy. And so if I trace those emotions, that anxiety back, it always comes back to idolatry. Because it means I'm trying to find something, significant status, security, or joy in something or someone other than in God. And so in those moments of clarity, when when I kind of realize that I've been allowing an idol to rise up in my heart, when I turn to God in worship, and sometimes that literally just means like, stopping and praying and praising God and proclaiming what is true about Him and putting on music and just fixing my focus on God, on who He is, on what He has done and who I am in Him, then I just find that peace coming back. I find that anxiety starting to melt as those idols get taken down and God gets brought back to the center because God needs to be at the center to have a, a pleasing life, right? I mean, because I, I, I think of worship in terms of like the solar system. You know how our solar system works? There's the sun at the center, and then there's a bunch of these other things called planets that revolve around the sun. And what keeps those planets moving properly in orbit, keeping their prop, proper place without flying off into space or colliding with one another? What keeps them in proper orbit? Is that gravity? Because the sun has gravity. What a weird thing. Mass has gravity. Something that's big has gravity that pulls something towards it and keeps things in place. The reason that our earth doesn't fly off into space or collide with Jupiter is because we have something at the sun called the center and in God's wisdom and how he made the world, it's just perfect. So that when you have that big thing in the middle, everything else orbits around it perfectly and it works. There's life. But idolatry, for me, I think a picture is taking the center, the sun, taking it and putting it in an orbit and taking the next biggest thing, Jupiter, and putting it at the middle. And what would happen if you did that? What would happen if you replaced the sun with Jupiter? Chaos. Everything would go out of alignment. There would be destruction because it's not big enough. You need the sun at the center to hold everything together in its proper place. And for me, that's a picture of God. Only God can be the center. And if God is the center of our devotion, if He is that which we worship with our whole hearts, all these other pieces find their proper place and bring life and not chaos 
I think that's why we worship the first day of the week. I love that. I love that, you know, when there was this group of people called the Christians, the spiritual community that God built, followers of Jesus, many of them were Jewish, and they started Instead of worship, having their day of worship on, on the Saturday, they started doing that on Sunday, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection. And so we've, we've done that ever since. And I think it's a beautiful picture, right? We don't worship at the end of the week. We begin with worship. The very first thing we do when we begin our week is we get up. And we definitely don't check our phones. And we get ready and we come and we worship God as a way of orienting ourselves, as we go into the rest of life to be reminded that life is worship, to have God at the center. So coming back to Paul's description of, of worship, my version says true and proper worship. Your version maybe says spiritual worship. That word there in the Greek that gets translated different ways is literally like it, it's a Greek word, logikon. What word, what word do you think comes from that? Logic. This is your logical worship, okay? This is your reasonable, rational worship. If this is true about God, then, it, then, then, then worshiping Him with our whole bodies, with our whole lives, only makes sense in view of God's mercy, right? Our worship is a response to what God has done. That's why Paul says at the very beginning, verse 1, therefore I urge you, brother, urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Why do we worship God with our whole beings? Because we know the gospel, the good news of Jesus, what God has done for us. What belongs to us through His Son Jesus who came and took on flesh and died on the cross and rose from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death and bringing us into a reconciled relationship with God that we can enjoy forever and ever and ever and ever. And just when you think forever's over, there's more forever and ever and ever. And everything else in this life is fleeting. Everywhere else you try to find meaning and joy and security, it's fleeting. It will not satisfy, it will not sustain. So he says, in view of God's mercy, which which Paul has meticulously unpacked over 11 chapters of Romans, he says, in view of all of that, the only logicon thing to do, the only reasonable thing to do is to give God your total worship in every area of your life. Why? Not just because that's what God wants and that's pleasing to God, but because that's the pathway to a pleasing life. It's interesting when you, when you look here in verse 1 and 2, he uses the word pleasing twice. He says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That's what a lot of people think religion is, right? Just pleasing to God. It's like there's, there's a big guy upstairs and yeah, you better be on his good side. So if he says give it all, you better give it all because he has the power to like squish you like a bug. So, you know, be pleasing to God. That just sounds, again, like, like, like duty, obligation. But, but I love what Paul then says in the next verse. He says, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice pleasing to God 
We don't conform to the pattern of this world, but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Who gets the pleasure here? Who is pleased? God and us. Worship isn't just our gift to God. Worship is God's gift to us. Worship is the way that we get to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to offer to us. Pleasure is not a zero-sum game. If we give some to God, that's less for us. No, when we live to please God with our life, that leads us to know His good, pleasing, and perfect will in our own life. Mm. The best thing you can do, Paul says, the best thing you can do is to worship God with your whole heart. Is to not hold anything back. To have no idols. Just the very last verse. If you want to throw up Matthew 14, verse 33, I love this little verse. It's probably the smallest parable in the Gospels. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. When this man discovered something greater, a greater treasure, God. The relationship with God we have through Jesus Christ, through the gospel. That man went, and in joy, he gave everything up. He offered it all to God. He withheld nothing. Why? Not with sadness, but in joy. In joy because he had found something better. A heart that worships God has, knows that in God it has found something better than anything else or anyone else offers so as Christians, before we are anything else, we are worshipers. Before you're a, you know, a mechanic or before you're a mother or a father or a child or a grandparent or anything else, you are a worshiper. That is the core of who you are. All those other things will pass away, all those other titles and labels, but forever we will be worshipers of God. And so as we bring this to a close here, um, one thing I, I just want to invite you into very strongly, this coming Wednesday here at the church in this room, but not even in this room, in this whole building, and maybe in this whole property, and maybe even beyond this property into this community, we'll see. But we're going to have an evening devoted to prayer, singing and primarily prayer together. It's going to be a little bit different than what we've sometimes done in the past, but God just kind of laid that on my heart, and we as pastors have felt the same thing, that in this, in this season that we're in in our church, what we need to do more than anything else is we need to come together to worship God together because everything, everything we do, everything we are, everything flows out of worship. And so I just... If, if you don't absolutely have to be doing something else this Wednesday, I encourage you, please come here Wednesday evening, 7 to 8.30, as together we're just going to devote ourselves to worshiping God primarily 
in prayer as we fill this whole building and maybe beyond with that, that worship as we confess and profess and petition God and praise Him. Paul says, offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Offer. That's a choice. That's our job is to offer. So let, let me just ask you this question as we close. Are there any idols that are vying for your heart? Is there anywhere else in which you are really trying to pursue that as, as the place where you find your joy, your security, your significance instead of in God? Is there an idol in your heart that you are worshiping, that you need to turn from, that you need to cast down, or, or, or maybe something you're wrestling with, an idol that's trying to weasel its way into your heart, vying for your allegiance and for your affection. I want to invite, invite you into a moment of prayer with God. Just right now, where you are, if you want to bow your head and close your eyes, you can do that. And the team's going to come up here and lead us in one final song. But I want to give you an opportunity just to start the conversation with God and just ask God, God, are there any idols in my heart? Anything that I am treasuring more than you? And maybe during this message, God was speaking to you, or maybe right now, like God may reveal to you idols that are vying for your heart. And, and if anything just comes to you, um, I invite you to just pray and, and just give that thing up and just to cast that idol down and to invite God to come back into the center of that part of your heart. And after we pray, church, here, as we sing this final song, we didn't do this in the first service, but I just kind of feel God wants me to in, in, invite you to do this. If, if, there's just, if, if you just want to offer yourselves again in some way, maybe just in a general, maybe, maybe there's something very specific in your life that you want to offer to Him or an idol that you want to reject. Um, as we sing this final song, whether where you are, if you, if you want to get on your, your knees right there, if you want to kind of come up to the front here and just give, on, give yourself uh, down on your knees as a way of just offering yourself, offering your bodies fully to God to worship Him, then um, I just invite you to do that. Father, we thank You that You love us. Lord, and you love us so much that you don't want us to just go around in this world trying to secure ourselves, manufacture our own joy, our significance, or meaning, or identity. But those are all things that you give to us in full measure through the gospel, through your son Jesus, who came and bore our sin and has won our victory and has secured our life through his resurrection and has reconciled us to you through faith. 
God, we just thank you for all the spiritual blessings that are ours through your Son, which we just lay hold of again today. And God, we just want to be those who worship you with totality. We don't want to hold anything back from you. We don't want to hold any area back, Lord. We want to offer our whole selves to you um, and just declare that you are our ultimate treasure. You are our joy. You are our security. You are our significance. And nothing and no one can take that from us. We have that in you and it's safe and it's eternal. And we just praise you and thank you, God, for for that, that that is true. And, And then the only reasonable thing for us to do is just to give our whole selves to you. Which is just to help us make that choice in every area of life. In your son's name we pray. Amen.